the Fixed Income Explained podcast from Aberdeen. Welcome to Aberdeen's Fixed Income Explained podcast. I'm your host, Peter Marsland, a Fixed Income Investment Specialist at Aberdeen. And today we'll be addressing uncertainty. We will discuss factors that could be currently influencing investor sentiment and also our key investment themes for the remainder of 2023. Joining me today is Ken Akintui, Head of Asian Sovereign Debt, Jamie Irvin, Investment Director within our credit team, focused upon investment-grade sterling bonds, and Aaron Rock, Investment Director within our rates team, focused upon UK government bonds. So a good breadth of expertise to cover the investment landscape. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining me today. Hi, Peter. Hi, Peter. Hi there, Peter. So let's start off with a nice, easy, quick-fire round that requires a relatively short answer. In your opinion, what is the most significant factor that will influence your particular market over the next 12 months? And uh, let's uh, kick that off with you, Aaron. Thanks, Peter. So in a single word, it would be inflation from my side. Just to draw that out a little bit, uh, as a government bond investor, so the foundation of my investment view is the macroeconomic environment. So big picture stuff, growth, unemployment, fiscal monetary policy. And I don't think there can be any doubt that over the last 12 months, the rise in inflation has dominated that landscape and influenced every one of those factors. It's my view that over the coming 12 months, that inflation will continue to be the dominant force. However, it will be the debate over how rapid inflation declines from here that will now dominate, and also how dogmatic the central banks will be in their pursuit of 2% targets. So there are many other factors to consider, but for me, inflation will be the driving force and have profound consequences for the global economy. Yeah, I think that's something that's probably at the... uh on the tip of everyone's tongue at the moment in terms of what are the key factors. Um, JV, what about your particular market? Thanks, Peter. So I could relate to everything that Aaron has, of course, just mentioned there, particularly with respect to the UK. And when we're we're looking at the credit health of, of UK companies, UK corporates, and UK households, I think as a direct corollary of, of what Aaron has just said, in my very short answer, it would be restrictive lending conditions. We still have yet to see the pace and extent to, to which these feed into the real economy and the subsequent impact thereafter on households and corporate borrowers. That would be my brief tuppence worth. And if we were to broaden that out, looking at this on a, in a global context, uh, what are your thoughts, Ken? Yeah, thanks, Peter. Uh, Obviously, my team invests in the Asian fixed income markets, both the macro, primarily local currency government markets, as well as the uh, uh, credit markets as well. Uh, Somewhat linked to those two topics, I mean, we would think that the growth environment is probably going to be the most important factor, not just for Asia, but obviously we're a part of emerging markets, uh, fixed income markets as well. Um, And the nuance there will be that obviously there's a very strong focus on, you know, potential recessionary risks uh, as we go into the second half of the year. And these could have a differing impacts on the emerging market landscape. On the one hand, you know, a relatively shallow uh, recession could end up 
being positive because that will take uh, the, the, the foot off the uh, policy normalization um, cycle that is going through some of the developed markets and this continued increase in funding rates that has, has put pressure on some of the emerging world and could end up quite being quite positive actually as that cycle rolls over. On the other hand, a deepened uh, recession in the global environment uh, could end up being quite negative with many different sort of paths that, that that could affect the emerging markets and Asian markets, you know, the commodity channel for some of the broader emerging markets, and of course, the export and trade and growth uh, cycle for uh, the exporting sort of Asian economies. Yeah, thanks for that, gentlemen. Um, so those are the sort of the headline drivers. What are the other key factors that you are currently considering when you're managing portfolios uh, to generate positive returns? So from, uh, from my perspective, Peter, you know, given what I said before about considering things from the macro environment, I guess we start from a global context. And I guess the good thing about looking at things from that macroeconomic environment is there's always something to be, you know, have a view on or something to, 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 to look at and, and to study and research. And, you know, in a global context, in the very near term, it's probably quite topical for a lot of listeners. We're, we're thinking about the U.S. debt ceiling debate and whether that gets resolved. Some of the potential fragilities within the U.S. banking sector, also the outcome of the war in Ukraine, particularly and its impact on food and energy markets. And of course, the, the transition to a net zero economy. So th those are some of the things in a global context. If we zoom in a little closer to home, uh, you know, I manage UK government bonds. And in the domestic context, I would I would pick out the likely path for the for the Bank of England in terms of monetary policy. Are we nearing a peak in policy rates? Uh, also on the on the political side of things, we know that we have to have a UK general election at some point next year. So we need to consider the changes in fiscal policy that that may entail if, if there is indeed a change in government. And then also, uh, I think crucially for the next six months in particular, will be the impact of refinancing within the UK mortgage market. So for us, that is a particularly interesting topic and one which will have significant consequences for, for the Bank of England. OK, thank you, Aaron. Uh, and Jamie, what are you considering from a credit perspective with an outlook over the next sort of six to nine months? Thanks, Peter. Well, again, as a credit investor, what Aaron has just described in the political and macroeconomic environment, that's, of course, crucial for us. But it's also very important that we need to consider what valuations are reflected or are reflecting um, at that stage in the credit cycle and at this stage in the economic cycle. So credit spreads in sterling investment grade on average about 180 basis points. And that is pricing in some recession risk if you look at pricing from a historical perspective and with yields nearing 6% on a yield to maturity basis. But we need to be quite selective in where we allocate that risk as Aaron has, has alluded to, the UK has seen 12 consecutive rate hikes from the Bank of England, but they have also nearly completed their sale of around £15 billion pounds, uh, worth of corporate bonds, which they built up during the pandemic as an emergency liquidity measure. So as this tightening feeds through, we need to be wary of sectors and of issuers which are perhaps more leveraged or are more sensitive to increased costs of capital and increased costs of financing. For example, the real estate sector 
that's one that has been well storied over the past few months and particularly commercial property not just in the UK but in the US and across developed markets so the credit spreads of, of these issuers they've been hit more severely due to concerns on declining asset valuations higher borrowing costs but something that we consider as credit investors is that's not a homogenous sector and there is differences between issuers um, you know there are opportunities among many good operators which are more conservatively levered have higher quality assets and don't have any impending maturity walls and they have spreads that are, can be quite compelling or unjustifiably elevated similarly if we look to the banking sector as we know has been very storied over the past few months with the events among the U US regional banks and the eventual demise of Credit Suisse. Something to consider it, most bank debt in UK investment grade, it's from large UK or large European or the major globally systemically important US banks. So the senior higher quality debt of some of these larger capitalized names remain at very discounted spreads. And it's we've not seen in Europe and the UK, there hasn't been the same deposit flight as has been seen in some of the US regional banks. It's also important to consider that the UK credit market, it's not homogenous UK specific risks. It is quite diversified. Nearly 50% of the investable universe is, is actually from corporate borrowers based outside of the UK. So we actually think there are, despite the more difficult macroeconomic picture, um, there are plenty of opportunities and we have a lot more dispersion in credit spreads and in volatility which we think presents us good opportunities, provided you take a selective, um, active approach uh, and remain appropriately diversified. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good point you make, Jamie, about the, the increased volatility within markets at the moment is often beneficial to active managers who can, like you say, make good informed decisions around where to be exposed differently to the benchmark to try and add value. So I think that's a that's a really valid point. And Ken, what are the other things that you are really sort of considering on your investment horizon at the moment? Yeah, I mean, thanks, uh, Peter. I mean, there's there's so many factors to, to look at, but really, if we were to aggregate them, it's about thinking about how the variety of markets within the region will perform in the kind of uh, environments that we're thinking about. Uh, for many of the uh, central central banks and economies in the region, actually, they were already hitting sort of peak cycles in inflation and, and monetary policy uh, already sort of last year. And so, you know, the gaze is already shifting away from inflation towards some of these growth headwinds. And we're starting to anticipate that you'd get the first central banks beginning to cut rates uh, over the next uh, few months and certainly towards the end of the year. So trying to identify where that maybe hasn't been priced in and position in these markets where, to be honest, for several years as we went through this inflation and, and uh, monetary policy cycle, uh, you wanted to be very light risk in and then suddenly you have value created across the region in, in markets like Korea, even in Philippines, in Indonesia, and really a very broad, diversified uh, opportunity set. And then, of course, there's the focus on, you know, just in case there are those downside risks, which markets are more resilient. And typically, those are the more idiosyncratic markets. We have 
very much over the last decade or more gone out of our way to find trades and investments that other global investors don't own. And these are typically markets that maybe are difficult to access or global investors are not familiar with things like the Chinese uh, domestic fixed income market and the uh, Indian domestic fixed income market, because that allows us to avoid one of the biggest shocks that tends to hit markets, which is that outflow of capital every time uh, there's some kind of shock to the global economic system. And these trades have really performed uh, exceptionally well uh, over the last few years they've really been key drivers of actually delivering strong performance through these shocks we've seen in 2018 20 and 22 uh, somewhat surprising global investors given some of the shocks have actually emanated and away from Asia. Uh, the Asian local currency markets have actually de delivered pretty robust uh, positive returns over the last three years, five years, particularly for a sterling uh, based uh, investor where you might look at uh, Asian FX risk in a sterling Asia uh, sense. So those are some of the things we're looking at. Uh, the idiosyncratic nature of markets, the sensitivities to some of the global risks. There are other factors as well that may be a little bit more short term. So for example, we're in uh, you know, a very high seasonality period at the moment with a uh, tendency for dividend repatriation outflows coming from some of these markets, which puts additional pressure on some of the uh, currencies. But we can actually use that as a better entry point to take risk in, in currencies like the Korean won, uh, the Philippine uh, peso for as, as two examples. So numerous kind of structural, uh, medium term and long term uh, as well as some short-term factors that we can focus on in terms of being able to capitalize on, on better valuations in these markets. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point you raised there, Ken, is that for domestic investors that are, say, UK or European-based, it seems like they've obviously we've gone through a lot of pain last year with the, the increase in government bond yields that we've seen and, and central banks starting to hike. But obviously in other parts of the world, such as Asia, there are countries that are going through a different part of the economic cycle, they've already gone through that hiking part, and they're actually starting to see interest rates and, and bond yields actually come down, which is you know, in contrast to what we're seeing uh, in the West. So taking that broader sort of global approach, you can certainly see other interesting opportunities emerge uh, as an investor. So taking that, that bigger view of uh, the opportunities and the, the landscape available um, can be quite key at a time like this, I guess. Okay, so I think one of the things that's been quite interesting at the moment is that you know, given that, that bank rates in, in, in the UK and, and Western markets have uh, increased as governments respond to the, the high inflationary pressures that, uh, that we've witnessed, cash rates are actually quite, quite uh, attractive. So the old saying that cash is king appears to be resonating with investors and a, a lot of investors effectively sitting on the sidelines and, and holding cash because uh, it now does offer you know, a positive nominal return, which in a sense is risk-free. What would you say to investors today to try and tempt them away from that sort of risk-free asset class into your particular um, area of the investment universe? Uh, let's start with you again, Aaron. Yeah, it's an interesting concept, and you know, it's something that that we have observed as well. Is that is that build up of of cash and investment into money market funds in particular over the the last sort of three to six months? And I guess, in some respects, it's no surprise given that for a decade or so following the Great Financial Crisis, investors had become conditioned to cash being a zero-yielding asset. You, know, you mentioned cash is king. Certainly for, for 10 years, I can remember the phrase being cash is trash because effectively you were, you were, it was a zero-yielding asset. So you know, when investors see a yield now on offer, say in the UK, of 3 perhaps even 4%, it's attractive 
But I think there, there are some things which need to be considered within that. I think the first is that it is, it is a nominal rate of return. So it, it offers zero protection against inflation. So it's great you know, receiving a 4% nominal return, but if inflation is 8%, then that doesn't stack up very well as, a, as, a, as an investment. For me, I tend to view cash as perhaps more of a staging post for investors who may be on a journey from, from one asset class into another. So for me, what I would say is given the level of the risk-free yield on offer in some government bond yields currently, uh, if we take the UK as an example, you know, we're trading around that 4 to 4.5% 4 nominal yield in government bonds. And I guess what they offer you that cash doesn't is an element of duration sensitivity. So just to explain that a little bit further, you know, should it transpire that, that central banks have perhaps over-tightened policy this year, we go into a little bit of a slowdown in the second half of the year, and they're forced to cut rates. As rates fall, holding those government bond assets would give you an additional capital return. That would not be the case if you were in the cash. If you were holding cash at that point, you would just be beholden to that lower rate of return on offer. So for me, you know, I look at where we are in the cycle, I believe we are approaching peak rates in terms of monetary policy. And I see those risk-free government bond yields, particularly in shorter dated maturities, as offering good value here for investors, either in the nominal sense or perhaps even in short dated index linked government bonds, which have had a torrid couple of years, but to me look, look reasonable value here. Yeah, no, I think, uh, I think that's definitely something worth considering. And Jamie, what about you in terms of credit? Yes, I'd, I'd agree with everything we've discussed so far that cash has certainly become more compelling. It's, it's difficult to argue with that. But I think in the UK, you still achieve what to me is quite an attractive pickup by investing in credit. Using a very anecdotal example, I get just over 3% interest on my instant access bank savings account. I won't tell you which which bank that is, um, but I think that is one of the, the best in the market from my research. But I compare that to around about 6% yields I can achieve in a short dated corporate bond fund, for example, which also has the opportunity for capital growth. And we think that is a great alternative if, if you are more conservatively minded or you're minded to take shelter in cash I think, you know, we, we have discussed that cash is, in inverted commas, a risk-free asset, but it is only risk-free to the extent um, that you're not suffering um, elevated levels of inflation. Short-dated bonds we, we define as investment-grade corporate bonds, so high-quality credit risk that mature within five years. So they also have much lower duration risk than a typical bond fund. And hence, historically, these bonds have traded at lower yields, if you look on average over the past 10 years, about 75 basis points lower than a, a normal maturities corporate bond index. And with short dated credit, having more visible earnings, visible cash flows over the shorter time frame, they've tended to trade at tighter spreads than bonds with longer maturities. But we're now in quite an interesting and rare environment where you can achieve both a yield and a spread pickup from short dated bonds 
um, versus bonds across all maturities. And so we think that's a very compelling area. Again, we would suggest that you need to be selective in your credit exposure. If you take a closer look at the short dated index, for example, over 50% of that universe is in banking bonds. So you want to make sure that you're picking the issuers you're comfortable with and that you're appropriately diversified and selective. Thanks, Jamie. It, it does seem quite a while since we've actually managed to say that uh, the yield you can get on a short dated sterling credit bond is uh, is about 6%. So it's uh, certainly a lot more of an attractive entry point than it was many years ago, um, or in the most recent past anyway. But uh, Ken, 6%, uh, I'm sure that seems quite meager offerings to what uh, your region could potentially offer. Yeah, look, I mean, there's a, there is a time and a place for holding cash. I think Jamie touches on the point that inflation sort of erodes uh, the value of, of that cash quite a bit. But, you know, at a certain point, you want to be, you know, if you've got strong investment discipline, you want to be deploying that cash when markets are cheap. Uh, rather than waiting for markets to get expensive and then deploying that cash. And the fact is we've been through one of the most torrid um, environments, particularly for emerging markets. And, you know, if I speak more broadly than just Asian uh, fixed income, you know, many parts of the universe are trading at attractive levels. And some of the risks that have been faced by the asset class, you know, have started to fade into the background. So, for example, if you're holding dollar assets, uh, whether that be dollar-denominated credit or sovereign bonds, one problem was initially when you're in the early stage of the Fed's uh, hiking cycle uh, that the U.S. Treasury rates erode a large part of those returns. But now that we've been seeing uh, Treasury sort of peaking, you no longer have that underlying drag on these dollar-denominated assets, and the spreads are still at pretty attractive levels. I mean, sovereign spreads are still you know close to a 500 spread, so the yields are quite attractive. If you really have risk appetite, you know there's far more frothier parts of the investment universe, like the frontier uh, space, where uh, that market is trading at historically very, very cheap levels. But obviously, that is a very long-term trade because it's going to take a while for global growth to return to levels that will allow these small, more vulnerable economies to really see the kind of economic recovery that will drive the kind of socioeconomic and other positive uh, changes that take them away from this uh, sensitive uh, environment that they've been in. You know, other than that, I mean, I think uh, if you look across into the regional equity markets, because of the sort of Asian-centric nature of some of the risks that have been faced, you know, you, you're seeing opportunities to buy some of the equity markets in Asia at price the book levels of, you know, one times or, or slightly above that. You know, they're trading at very cheap levels. So if you're not deploying cash in this kind of environment, where if you take a medium-term view, we will see a recovery in growth. You know, it may be coming slower than some of that anticipated, but China will eventually reopen uh, more strong and that will provide uplift to uh, regional uh, markets as, as those intra-regional flows from China start to emerge, um, then, you know, you'll be missing out on some of these really key opportunities. And that's before we get into some of the nuanced opportunities, sort of, sort of like technology and maybe renewable, uh, sustainable parts of the, uh, the asset class. Um, even in the environment we've been in, some of these markets have performed very strongly. So for a sterling investor, you'd have had, you know, 30% return, say, from the, the Indian bond market over the last uh, five years, right? Um, so clearly some very strong opportunities. And then if we think about 
you know, that particular opportunity set, central bank could be easing policy rates by about, uh, you know, up to 100 basis points over the next 12 months. So valuations are still attractive because that is not priced in. So not only can you get attractive carry slightly above 7%, but there's the capital gain as well um, that can be achieved uh, as well as the yields come down in that market. So, you know, we think you should definitely be sort of hunting around and trying to identify some of these better, uh, you know, risk adjusted opportunities. And obviously some of them are dependent on investors risk appetite, but across this investment universe, there is an asset class to fit the most conservative investor and uh, the most uh, risk seeking investor um, that uh, will offer value and probably give much stronger returns than uh, than cash over the medium term. I think that's a, that's some really solid points there and you know, highlighting the danger of just sitting on the sidelines effectively and uh, you know not taking advantage of the the opportunities that are out there you know could be something that's detrimental to to overall you know investment returns uh, to people that are just sitting cash uh, over the next sort of six to nine months well thank you for that and uh, let's wrap this up quickly with a, a quick fire round to finish with so finally is there anything that's keeping you awake at night and uh, Let's actually start that with uh, Jamie. Uh, I'd say my fixed rate mortgage deal expiring in November is keeping me, giving me some sleepless nights. Uh, I need to ask Aaron where he thinks rates will be then. Um, <laughs> but on on a serious note, I guess I'm I'm just one example of the um, the many mortgaged households in the UK that have have yet to see their their rate change. Um, since the Bank of England started hiking rates. And I think we have around half of, of households with a mortgage have have yet to see their rate change rise. So it's, um, you know, certainly I'm conscious of what that will mean for my disposable income come later this year. And I know I won't be alone in thinking that. And we know that is ultimately the transmission of monetary policy happening in, in real time and being able to witness it um, from my own personal view as well as from my, my investment point of view, is, is going to be quite an interesting journey. And yeah, this is where Aaron's going to tell me whether I should fix for two years or fix for five or, or go for a, <laughs> oh, for a variable rate. I, I wish I had that answer, Jimmy. Um, but <laughs> I, I, actually, I mean, what, what, you've, just, what, what you've just said is the thing that I, I think from, a, from an investment perspective that, that is keeping me awake as a UK government bond investor. And it is that that lagged impact of of monetary policy tightening feeding through uh, particularly within the, the UK mortgage market you know it's something we've we've done a, a lot of research on lately and there has been a fundamental change in structure within that UK mortgage market prior to 2010 about 40% give or take of the UK mortgage market were on fixed rates now around 85% or more of the stock of mortgages in the UK are on fixed rates. And as you mentioned, Jamie, what that means is the transmission mechanism for the Bank of England has gotten longer. It's, it takes longer for their monetary policy actions to feed through to households and businesses. And in this case, you know, UK mortgage holders. So you know, our estimates indicate that the second half of this year, there will be around 150,000 fixed rate mortgages per month coming to an end, which will re need refinancing. And most of those are actually sub 2% at the moment. So, you know, those households are going to see a significant increase in, in, in bills uh, and a significant decrease in disposable income in the second half of the year. And, and we're concerned about what that means for economic activity. And we think the Bank of England should be mindful of that when, you know, considering their next moves for 
in the the policy rate going forward. So you're you're a prime example of of what is keeping me awake at night, other than the prospect of Manchester City winning a winning a treble. For a Manchester United fan like me, that is uh, a very very scary thought. I can completely echo that sentiment, uh, Aaron. Being from from an Arsenal perspective, um, just actually on that. Um, changes in uh, the mortgage rates and the impact that will have on consumer behaviour, is that likely to impact the demand side of the inflation equation potentially, which could help as a dampening effect on inflation prints? We think so, yes. Uh, I mean, we're speaking on a day when you know, UK inflation has been released and you know, there, there was a slight upside surprise versus expectations. So you know, currently headline inflation is, is 8.7%. We do expect that to continue declining throughout the rest of the year. And yes, I think that that erosion of disposable income, that hit to real household incomes, we think can weigh further on that, particularly from, as you say, the demand and consumption side. You know, Households will have to allocate more of their, their income to non-discretionary items, and that will surely slow down the economy. And as I said before, we think that's something that the Bank of England are aware of, but are are slightly frightened of of being too vocal about at this juncture, um, given that their major concern has to be inflation. Yeah, definitely. And finally, Ken, what's... Uh, I think, sorry, Jamie, are you going to add something to that? Well, I, I can relate that also from just what we're looking at from a credit perspective, where it's very clear that mortgage payments are, are going to rise for a lot of people, and that is going to weigh on their disposable income. But as yet, that's falling short of people going into losing their incomes or, or or finding themselves unemployed, which in previous, you know, deeper, more severe recessions or financial crises, when we look at banks' asset qualities and banks' earnings, banks right now aren't too concerned about people having to pay more for their mortgage. They've done a lot more to assess their affordability loan to value is much more much lower than it has been in the past and overall from taking a very high high level view using me as an example you know i'm i'm still going to be able to afford to pay my mortgage um you know come um the time that the rate does rise in it provided i still have a, a steady and reliable income and so while we're we've not yet seen that feed through in in a deeper you know a, a deeper depths of unemployment in the uk we're still relatively comfortable um, with the overall corporate picture and the overall strength of um, corporate balance sheets, but particularly, um, you know, some of the more mortgage UK mortgage exposed issuers. Yeah, thanks, Jamie. Uh, and finally, Ken, anything keeping you awake at night at the moment? I have to be honest, Peter, I, I actually am blessed with sleeping very, very soundly at night. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's because I'm a, a strong advocate in uh, meditation, which I strongly recommend to anyone, but particularly investors, you know, being able to keep a calm mind through what can be quite volatile uh, cycles. It could also be because, uh, you know, I was born in Aberdeen in, in Scotland. You won't tell by my accent or indeed by my surname, but uh, I've spent the uh, last 20 years living in Asia and over here we're blessed with relatively 
prudent governments that tend not to make the same kinds of errors and mistakes that you see, not just in EM markets, but as you know, living in the UK, uh, some DM markets uh, as well. Uh, very high trust in government uh, over here. And more importantly, they tend to have this tendency to learn from crises. So the, the region goes from strength to strength uh, over the last uh, two decades. And so that makes you have the feeling that you know everything will kind of be all right. In the end of the day, they'll do the, the right thing and you'll get through these things uh, in a stronger mindset. Um, it could also be because I kind of follow the Dalai Lama's uh, sort of thought that, you know, if a problem is fixable, then there's not much point in worrying about it. And particularly when it comes to investing, most problems are fixable. You can always find a way to shift your asset allocation uh, to avoid a problem. Or indeed, if that problem happens, then you can take advantage of, you know, beating up uh, asset uh, valuations that will happen. So, you know, for all those reasons, I sleep quite soundly. But I have to say, we did just uh, get a new uh, new puppy that seems to uh, have taken to barking at nighttime. So every now and again, that sort of uh, will wake me up during the night. Thanks, Ken. And so aside from the puppies barking, I think it's a, it's a good way to conclude the podcast on that very uplifting and upbeat note from Ken about solving um, investor problems. So that concludes this episode of Aberdeen's Fixed Income Explained podcast. And I hope we've managed to provide you know a degree of clarity uh, to these uncertain times and to provide our views on what's likely to transpire over the sort of next six to nine months um, of the investment horizon. And it just finally goes me to, to, uh, to thank our guest speakers for their contribution. So thank you very much, everyone. Um, and if you'd like to find out more about our fixed income views, uh, you can subscribe to our fixed income newsletter by clicking on the link below. You can also listen to previous podcasts by clicking on the other link below. Uh, and finally, thank you for listening and goodbye. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for informational purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The companies discussed in this podcast have been selected for illustrative purposes only or to demonstrate our investment management style and not as an investment recommendation or indication of their future performance. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections or estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.